Welcome to the Base Path Podcast brought to you by New England Baseball Journal. I'm your host, Dan Guttenplan, along with co-host Matt Feld. We're more than halfway through the MIA baseball season with only a few weeks left before the playoffs. Matt, how's everything going on your end? Uh, I am good. It's May, so that means we're officially on the road. Usually not this much on the road. I usually just like in some random Massachusetts suburb watching watching an MIA baseball game someplace. But hopefully the weather starts to get better as the uh, as the season really kicks into full swing. <laughs> yeah, I should let our listeners know we're we're connecting by Zoom today because you're down in Atlanta for work. But uh, you've covered a ton of MIA baseball so far this season, and you're just coming off writing a story for us. Five takeaways from the season. One of those takeaways was Weymouth's start to the year. They're one of those teams that maybe we didn't have, you know, up in that upper tier in the first MIA preview that we did, but they're off to a really good start. How do you explain their their success so far? I think Weymouth thought they had a chance to be pretty good last year coming into the season. They had some really good pieces, both positionally and on the mound, and then they lost their their number one pitcher, Sean Zasloff, for the season about a week into the season with a, with a back injury and a shoulder injury and it kind of spiraled from there this year Zaslaw has been healthy he's been really good when he's been on the mound double digit strikeouts consistently pitching into the sixth and seventh inning and so he's been able to be a catalyst for them in the Bay State Conference uh, and then they've received big time pitching behind him in Jack Reyes who's you know thrown two complete game shutouts which has helped them you know support wide on Wednesdays on the mound and then positionally Gil Dolan Dylan Amano Andrew Daly, sophomore second base, they've kind of spearheaded a lineup that's been pretty consistent one to nine throughout. I don't know if Weymouth necessarily a state championship contender right now, but Sean Daslaw going to Bryant can get into the upper 80s, low 90s with a tight breaking ball. He can beat anyone, particularly you're talking about that first round game. And then if Reyes is coming along as a number two pitcher and can upset someone in the second round, you get Daslaw back for the round of eight and all of a sudden you're in the semifinals perhaps. So They've been a really, really strong team, a team that's kind of put all the pieces together from a talent standpoint. Now it's about whether they can carry it over uh, into the second half of the season, because if they can, they definitely have the pitching staff to be dangerous for some top seed going into the tournament. It's funny. I always thought those April games were pretty brutal uh, or could be at times. We've had a cold month of April, a rainy, you know, start to May. Are you looking for it? It looks like the forecast is going to be much better. What is it like covering those games and getting all those games in April? It's kind of funny to me. I don't know whether you learn more about a team or whether you throw the games out, right? On the one hand, like if you can go out there consistently and dominate, particularly at the plate in those conditions, I mean, that's pretty impressive. I mean, you look at Franklin's score, and I think they scored over eight or more runs in seven of their first eight games, you know, leading into after April break, and it's 40 degrees outside and freezing cold. You know, that's pretty hard to do consistently at that level. Conversely, there are other teams saying to themselves probably that once the weather gets warmer, their order is going to heat up, their arms are a little more loose, a little more relaxed a little more stretched out. So I've always found it interesting whether or not you take anything away from them overall. You know, at the end of the day, I usually feel like the teams at the end of the season are the teams that you feel like were good at the start of the season, whether or not they've underperformed or overperformed to that point. You know, who knows? But by and large, I would say that most teams, I think, are probably looking forward to like everyone else to the warmer weather. But I do think it's interesting that you can kind of take some things away. Teams that play well in cold weather to me are, are impressive, and they're probably going to translate that to the warmer weather where the teams that haven't played so well are hoping that the warmer weather kind of changes their fortunes, I guess. Yeah, you mentioned Franklin. We knew they would be really good. They were in the state championship game last year, Division One. I just read today they've allowed a total of six runs all year, and you just mentioned the the offensive numbers. They've been off to a phenomenal start, which we expected 
I was thinking the other day, we, I guess we all thought, you know, Franklin Taunton, they met in the championship last year and, you know, seem like they're destined to at least meet late in the tournament this year. Taunton had a second loss, I think, yesterday. And it looks like, and it was kind of like this last year with Taunton, where they don't have that, you know, number one starter who you're like, oh, that guy is one of the best pitchers in the MIA. Even last year in the state championship game, they had one of the Callies. And he he did really seven of them, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He did really well in that state championship game, but it was like, you know, they all kind of played above their 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 level in the state tournament. Do you think Taunton has enough starting pitching to make another deep run this year? Yeah, I do. I, I do. And I think one of the things that makes Taunton, you know, really good as opposed to and I and I mean this in a complimentary way, is that I think they're very versatile, they're very athletic and dynamic. So while maybe they don't have on the mound a superstar, so to speak, but I'm talking about 90 miles an hour, 95 miles an hour, they've got a lot of guys that they can kind of plug in and out that are consistent. You know, one thing I'll mention, you know, Franklin Tarn, two teams we thought coming into the year would be at the top. They've combined for one loss, and the only loss is when Franklin beat Tarn. They played together, so it's kind of that. You kind of throw that out the window. You know, the hard thing is that no team in Division One's gone undefeated since Catholic Memorial in 1972. So it's been 51 years since a Division One baseball team in Mass has gone undefeated. It's just, it's incredibly hard to do. And to me, when I look at Ton, you know, of course, they've already got the one loss. They're going to have a chance at a rematch with Franklin coming up here. But I just, I, I think their pitching, what makes them so lethal and so tough to beat is that they've just got so many guys that kind of fit that same role. They remind me of the Varians team a couple of years ago. Jerry Lambert was like, I don't know if we've got a number one, but we've got five number twos. And so you can go out there and you can throw those five number twos and they're going to give you a chance to win every given, any given day. At the very least, they're going to keep you in the game, even if they're not shutting you down. Jack Cowley has pitched really well this this year for for Pond. Last week, he pitched Monday and Friday because of a low pitch count Monday and was dynamic in both outings, allowing just two hits, I believe, in those two outings combined, one hit in each of them. So I think Tom's got enough starting pitching. You know, I think the question for them is just, just like, you know, Franklin, what type of draw do you get when the tournament rolls around? Are you going to be able to avoid uh, a big time number one pitcher early on that can that can shut you down. And there's like I said, there's a reason that no team in baseball in Division One's gone under 350 years. I just think Division One, you know, even though you might only be picking, you know, three or four state champions from the group, most teams in the top 16 in particular have at least one guy that can beat somebody on any given day. And so to me, that's what makes the field so unpredictable in general. Yeah. And Franklin, we mentioned some of those stats. They've been really unbelievable really two strong pitchers that can kind of win anytime they step on the mound. They've got tons of offensive uh, weapons. As you said, they're scoring a ton of runs. Do you, I, you hate to ask it, but you, you came up with that stat of, you know, no division one team has been undefeated. You don't want to lose obviously, but is it, would it be nice to get one out of the way before the tournament? How do you think they feel about that? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Right. I do think there's some sort of pride in the fact that you're undefeated. You know, when Franklin won the Super 8 back in 2018, I think they would gone 16 and 6 or 17 and 5 during the regular season. Last year, when they made the state championship game, they were 24, 23 and 3 at the time. And in fact, all three losses had come in a row right in the middle of April. Uh, and I remember talking to Zach Brown right before their third straight loss. And I was like, you know, you guys have lost a couple of games. What's been the deal? He's just like, we're playing really bad baseball right now, which is kind of funny. I think both games have been like one-run losses or something. It just shows the expectations they have there. I don't I don't know. I think teams take pride in going undefeated. I think a program like that's that accomplished so much. You know, I doubt Zach Brown's talking about it with his players, of course. It's it's too way too early in the year for that. We're only halfway through. But a program that's won a Super 8, 
establish itself as, in my opinion, the best MIA program in Massachusetts year in, year out, based on how well they contend, how many ball games they win at the level um, of competition they play at, you know, calling to be undefeated to me is probably something that you want to check off the check the box off, right? It's like the Patriots. They were always trying to eat six through rolls, but the one thing that they were always gunning for that they came off short a couple of times was the undefeated season. So I think it's the big goal of theirs if I think it's attainable. I think they're that good that of course they're gonna there's a shot any day that they could lose based on the pitching they faced in the league and come the postseason. But I think I'm sure you agree they've got a real chance to to pull this off if they maintain this level of play. Two other teams off to great starts in division two are Milton and Lemonster. I was we spoke with Rich Barnaby the other day and I was kind of joking like, hey, how furious are you that Milton got the one seed when those MIA rankings come out and you guys got the two. And he made a good point. Like, it doesn't really matter because the one versus two matchup would take place at a neutral site anyway. So it's, you know, it just comes down to strength of schedule, things like that for those MIA rankings. Is there any other team in Division Two that you think gets in that mix and has a possibility of, you know, jumping into that one-two seeding for the MIAs? Or do you think those are going to kind of be locked in for the rest of the season? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that Milton and Lemonster are the two teams to beat in Division Two right now. I think there's no, just look at their pitching. Milton, of course, the state championship pedigree. He talked to Rich Barnaby on the podcast, you know, a coach that's established himself and established a program as winners. They've been there before. I think King Phillip is going to be there at the end. I think they're going to be a big-time contender. They've got too much pitching. They were there a year ago. You know, when you talk about Ben Senjak in the middle of the order, maybe the best shortstop or one of the best shortstops in Eastern Mass, I should say. Tommy Monterano, when he's healthy on the mound, left-hander, um, he can beat anyone in the tournament. Women Anthem has been playing really, really good baseball. They were the number four team in the power rankings when they last came out. They're eight and two, and they've got Ryan Baker on the mound leading the way. Evan Yakovonis has been a really strong number two for them. A new coach this year, and Matt Hendrickson, who's established his own sort of hitting philosophy. And to me, they've I don't know if they've been necessarily a huge surprise because people knew that they had some good pitching coming in, but they've played really well. I think they've won seven in a row now. They're definitely a team I'm watching. I think I think both King Phillip and Women Hansen, if they were to play either Milton or Lemonster in a state semifinal, they've got the right guy on the mound. They're gonna have a they're gonna have a strong opportunity to potentially make some noise and and win games. I think any of those teams, those four teams in the top four to me, can really be big time state championship contenders. Yeah, earlier you mentioned Taunton not having like that 90 mile an hour guy. And I actually was thinking about this like a week or two ago. Is the, is 90 miles an hour even like the marker anymore for... Does anyone care? <laughs> yeah, no, because everybody th- everybody hit, seems to hit 90 these days. But I think in this context, it does matter when you're talking about like high school MIA competition. If you're talking about like, is this kid a pro prospect? Is he going to get drafted? And he's a 90 mile an hour pitcher. I don't think I don't think that makes him a uh, pro prospect anymore. I think now you have to be kind of like towards the mid 90s, like Jack Cropper or yep. Chandler Coe or one of those guys. But in an MIA baseball game, especially, you know, Division two, II, Division three, 90 miles an hour is still a dominant pitch. I think a 90 mile an hour fastball. What do you think? I agree with you 100%, especially if you can control it, right? If, if you're throwing 90 and the ball's going all over the place uh, and you can't hold runners, that's a different story. But I agree. I think in the MIA, you're throwing 90 with command. Uh, I just don't think there's a lot of hitters that can hit that. You're going to find some offenses that are a little more built for that that maybe see them more consistently. Their coaches know them how to prepare for them. Maybe they got machines, high-velocity machines. But overall, I, I would say that 90 is still in the MIA as good as anything, especially you get a secondary pitch to go with it. You talked about Jack Cropper and, you know, the the one thing around Cropper, just like most pitchers in high school, is just finding that consistent command. And when he's shown that this year, he's been untouchable. I think he had 16 strikeouts against Braintree over six innings 
you know, a couple of weeks ago. I mean, that's just unbeatable. It's unhittable. There's a reason scouts are all over him. There's reason scouts feel like he could be a top 10 round selection come the draft in July. So I think to me, I mean, again, we're talking about pro selection, amateur draft selections, top five rounds. You got to be 92 plus, I think, especially from the right side. Left side's a little different, 92 plus though. But for the MIA, if you're throwing 88, even 88 to 90 with command, you're you're really, really hard to beat still uh, in this state. Yeah, and then as we transition to Division Three, I want to ask about Austin Prep. And Austin Prep is not an MIA program anymore. They moved to, they're now a prep school. But I did want to ask about that because we've been doing prep school rankings, and this is kind of relevant to MIA just because they were, you know, a state champion at the Division Three level last year. They have not been in our top 10 for prep school polls. You know, we do a top 10 every week, and they haven't been in that. And I'm wondering how you think that transition has gone for them. Obviously, it wasn't going to happen right away where they're, you know, go from an undefeated Division Three season in MIA to undefeated in uh, NEPSAC. But do you think they're they're happy with that move or, how, or, you know, do you think it's going about how they expect it? You know, that's a good question. I think they probably, you know, didn't really know what to expect is my guess, especially to start the transition. Right. And I know talking to JP Pollard, he wanted to make sure his team faced the best competition that they could face playing an independent schedule this year in the NEPSAC. And they've done that. They've, you know, they played, you know, they scrimmaged Phillips Andover, were supposed to scrimmage Phillips Andover. They played BNN, BBNN, they played Nobles, they played Dexper, Dexter, they played Putnam. They've played good teams uh, across the board. I think one thing that when you transition into the NEPSAC school and into the NEPSAC and, and are playing that type of schedule, you have to figure out what type of players you can get, what type of student athletes you can recruit. Based on your school profile, based on your location, do you have boarding? Do you not have boarding? You know, when are you trying to get kids in? Are you trying to get them in middle school? Are you trying to get them in going into your junior year? Uh, I think one thing that a lot of the schools have done that are at a high level, Phillips Sandover, Dexter, those schools, is they've gotten those kids in probably freshman year, right? And maybe sophomore year at most. So they're in there for two or three years. They understand the school's philosophy from a baseball standpoint. And so they're already excelling in that mold as opposed to classify, reclassifying in their junior, senior year. And so I think that's one thing that those schools have done a really good job of, right? Thomas White being a multi-year guy, Matt Conti, Josh Baez at Dexter, those guys, multi-year guys, three, four, five-year guys, they're able to get those kids in their eighth grade, seventh grade, all the way through. And so they're part of the school culture. They're not just reclassifying to reclassify at prep school. And that, to me, is probably the separator right there, in my opinion. Austin Prep brought in a ton of kids this year, very talented players that have played well junior year. But I think it's hard sometimes to bring kids in in the middle. You've already got kids who have been part of your culture, and now you're trying to almost reform a new team all over again. And so I'm just going to be interested to see how that kind of Austin Prep adapts to that landscape going forward. And it just goes to show you how deep those teams in, in the NEPSAC have become over the last, wow. you know, 10 15 yeah. years or even since the, you know the covid situation so many kids made ended up transferring to prep schools to get that extra year no to doubt showcase um and they're just so deep you know they have not they have like division one starters every day on the mound and prep schools these days it's just hard to you know rattle off a season where you're 15 and 5 or 16 and 4 you're seeing so many good arms and at your first year there i could see that being a big transition for austin prep but let's stay with division three Oakmont, Taconic, and Foxborough are uh, undefeated. Is that is that the cream of the crop, or is there another team that you know maybe have suffered a loss, but it's going to be right in that mix too? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, you look at like you said, Taconic, Oakmont, Foxborough, kind of the top of the, at the you know, or are, are at the top there. 
Um, Taconic always a really good baseball program, in my opinion. Just been there consistently. They got upset last year. They were one of my favorites to get to the final last year. Got upset in the first round by Pittsfield, a rival right down the road. I'm sure they've been chalking out the bed. Caleb Allen has been putting out monster strikeout numbers for Oakmont. I feel like every time I look, he's striking out 14. I mean, literally every time I look, I'm like, is he pitching every day? Because I feel like every time I open up my seed, there's another highlight. And then Foxborough's got loaded. Is Foxborough's loaded with talent. You start with Sean O'Leary. You got the Gordon brothers, Ryan LeClaire. Their lineup is stacked. And I think their record is a little deceiving. They've lost to Ton, I believe. They've lost to Franklin. They've lost to Milton on a walk-off. So they played some pretty good competition that they struggled with from a victory standpoint during that time frame. But they're going to be more than equipped and more than well-prepared for the state tournament. One of the reasons they're ranked third in the MI power rankings right now is because of that strength of schedule that they have compared to their counterparts in Division Three. Those three teams, to me, across the board are good. Tantask was impressed, in my opinion, with a 10-2 and record. They're currently sixth in the rankings. We talked about Pittsfield last year upsetting Taconic as a low seed, and they're playing well above that this year in the seventh spot. I think those three, though, Clearly, the teams to beat there on their experience. They've been there before. They've been in state semifinal games before. Oakmont, to me, it's got a one guy that when he takes the mound, they can beat anyone, legitimately anyone. Fox were probably the best lineup in the division. So I think I think in Division Three tournament last year, I thought it was great. You had Austin Prep, Taconic, Oakmont, Medfield was really good last year. You have, of course, at Foxborough, Bishop Stang. This year, I think it's great again, too. I think there's really good teams um, across Division Three um, that makes it pretty entertaining. Speaking of Medfield, I did uh, we, every week we do top 10 performers from the week, just 10 guys who had either crazy individual stat lines in a game or even over the course of the week, maybe like you mentioned, somebody who gets two starts, you know, goes 14 innings scoreless or something like that. But anyway, Medfield pitcher Jack Collins on the season is 5-0, and 0.64 ERA, 48 strikeouts. He is just uh, unbelievable. And then last week, he had two starts on the mound, 14 innings, allowed one hit, one walk, struck out 14, and then he's hitting 605 on the season with 17 RBIs. He's been unbelievable. And he's kind of picked up. Jack Goodman wasn't a pitcher, but he was a big-time hitter last year for Medfield. Now, you know, Medfield kind of right there as a team coming off a disappointing state tournament run last year. Who knows? Maybe they make some noise in Division Three this year. Absolutely. You mentioned it, Dan, you know, Dan Worth, the, the coach over there has done a nice job where they became, where they've become contenders. Uh, you talked about Jack Collins seemingly freaking doing literally just about everything and anything, almost like unbelievable. Like, are these stats real? Who's keeping score of these stats? But, you know, he's, he's playing at a high level. But no, no question about it. And I'm sure those guys that are back for midfield, like you mentioned, they lost, I believe, in the round of eight to Amesbury, maybe. Or Newburyport, Newburyport, who went to the state final. They lost in the round of eight to Newburyport. They've got sour taste in their mouth. They've got a group back last year. I mean, of course, losing Jack Goodman, who's making an impact at Pepperdine this year, is a, is a tough loss. He was one of the best players or maybe the best positional player in the MIA last year. But another team, another program that's been consistent and been one of the better offenses, too, particularly in the Tri-Valley League, that's got good teams in it. Ashland's up there this year. Hopkinton's been playing well. They're in Division Two. Westwood's had a nice season so far. So they, the TVL's got some contenders. Um, especially in Division Three, they've got two of the top five seats. Who are some of the top individual guys that you mentioned? Oakmont, Caleb Hill, or Caleb Allen, excuse me, and Cropper, obviously, at Norwood. Who are some of the guys you've seen play, maybe surprised you a little bit, or guys, you know, maybe with Franklin and Taunton that you just said, you know, I know these guys are good, and they, they showed me exactly what I thought I was going to see. Any top performers this year that really jumped out at you? I mean... 
Lucas Rondo, the lefty at Central Catholic, I saw him pitch last year for the first. I remember I watched the pitch opening day against Calvin Morrill. Came out of the bullpen three innings. I think he had eight strikeouts. And I never heard of the kid. And, you know, if Central Catholic was high on him, I just never freaking heard of him. And uh, left-hander throw him mid to upper 80s with a great, you know, breaking ball. And he's a dent. Again, this year, he's been kind of a Swiss Army knife for them. He starts games. He comes out of the pen. For the most part, he's been efficient. He throws a ton of strikes. He's just really electric from the left side, and he makes that team, that rotation, that much more dynamic. He's been big time. He's sick in that conference. Matt Stewart at Chelmsford, both sides of the ball at the plate, out of the two spot in their lineup and on the mound. I think he beat both BCI and St. John's Prep. He's been big time in a lot of respects. Uh, I already talked about Sean Zaslaw from Weymouth, who, again, was a Division One commit, but maybe not as high on some people's radars just because the program hasn't been successful. And he's really stepped up for them, allowed them to, to be the team that they've been so far this year. Those three are kind of the ones that, that stand out to me the most. You, you already mentioned Caleb Allen. But there are other players across the state that, that have really kind of, in my opinion, stepped up. Brady Shea at St. John Shrewsbury, left-hander, that I talked to Charlie Evinger before the year started, and he was like, you're going to want to watch out for this kid. This kid's got a chance to be pretty good for us. And, and he's been a leader of a, what's been a really strong pioneer pitching staff that's allowed them to be in the top five in Division One so far. You know, Franklin and Ton have their players. Ryan McDougall's been a beast for Ton yet again. And, you know, Franklin's got Alfred Mucciaroni and, you know, Henry DiGiorgio, who have played at an incredibly high level, both on the mound and then, you know, DiGiorgio at shortstop. But there are players every year that kind of, you know, make their presence known and, and make themselves known, you know, as the season goes along. And that's particularly true come the postseason. I feel like in a lot of respects where teams have to go to their three or four starter um, that have to kind of step up and, and, you know, make play a big role because of the pitch count, because of, how condensed the tournament is. And now because of the weather, a lot of teams are going to be playing a lot of games in a short time span. Central Catholic's got nine games the next two weeks. Lemonster's playing a ton of games down the stretch that so you're going to find out what type of depth these teams have, not just from a pitching standpoint, but from a positional standpoint also. Yeah, it's funny. I was talking to uh, Rich Barnaby the other day and we were actually talking about like this stretch of the season where you're coming off a week of heavy rain and you're trying to cram in games and you know some teams are going to play four or five games a day or four or five games a week for the next couple of weeks. And I was telling him about, I used to cover uh, games up in Newburyport for the Newburyport Daily News. I was a sports editor there for a while. And their baseball coach was Bill Pettengill. He ended up, it was like, I think he was there for 45 years, won like 650 games, but he was a legendary coach and just like a complete character to cover his games. And I remember covering games this time of year, I'd go and there'd be like that fourth game in five days and he would start yelling at me like post game the minute he started i'd be like hey what did you think today he's like what do you think i thought of it that's our fourth game in fifth days that's a scheduled loss you need to talk to the athletic director about this and he just he he treated our relationship like he was coaching me like he would yell <laughs> at me after losses he would be all happy and tell me how great i was doing after wins who are some of the you know the personalities among coaches i i find that baseball coaches have these great personalities after after wins or losses, who do you really enjoy catching up with post game? That's a good question. Chris Costello at Walpole, very good. Yeah, I kind of rank coaches based on their sarcasm. Uh, yes. To me, that's where the that's where the humor is. Uh, yeah. With the sarcastic answers, or just the kind of the more relaxed and answers. Chris Costello at Walpole is always great to catch up with. It's just again playing both coaching at Walpole for a number of years and also coaching at like Bravo Wall Scene with the Gators has a really good understanding of players across you know Eastern Mass and the state. John Sexton at Central Catholic, who's also now the football coach there. Uh, again, high level of sarcasm, good entertainment, <laughs> but also, again, someone who really, again, understands their school, their program, because of the fact that they're a prominent figure in two different sports there. A, a really good person to talk to. 
I, you know, you talked to Rich Barnaby yesterday. He's always great. Again, I think Rich is such a great pulse on Central Mass, which again, for me, living in Eastern Mass, being from, being from Eastern Mass and, and covering it a fair amount, you know, to have someone out there that's got great connections out there. And again, has a great feel for the Midwatch League it is huge. Dwayne Follett, Plymouth North, again, uh, someone who's asserted their program to be a contender every single year. He's always a treat. And yeah, I think I think those, I think that Mount Rushmore of, of high school coaches to talk to right there. I think those those are four good ones. You've got people that are newer on the scene. I think John Sexton's in his third year, and then you've got Dwayne Fillette, who I think has been coaching Plymouth North since the Great War. Nice. And you, so you went to BC High, didn't you? I did. Yes. I was looking at the MIA rankings the other day. The Catholic Conference is it a yep. down year for the Catholic Conference? There weren't too many in the top ten, if any. I can't remember if any is. Is St. John Shrewsbury in the Sorry. Catholic Conference? They yes. are. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So, so they were up there like number four, yep. but then I think like BC High, Zavarian, all those teams were a little bit down this year. What's that about? Yeah, I do think the league's a little down this year, you know, relatively, you know, from the last couple of years. I mean, when I was in high school, you know, 10, 15 years ago, the, the picks were always that the Southern sectional schools, the BCI, Zavarian to the world, CMs would win the section and play St. John's Prep in the Vaughn, in the state that we vote every year. Right. And I think there was a, I think there was a, I think there was a stretch. I think there was like a 12 year stretch for Catholic schools from the Catholic conference had won like 10 of 12 South sectional finals. It was something ridiculous. BCI had won four, Zavarian won three. I think CM had won another one. But to me, when I look at it, and this is probably a more deeper dive dynamic, is I think the last couple of years we talked, we talked about, we've written about the reclassifications to prep schools and the ISL kids that are leaving their public schools and going there. I think what's happening now is kids are leaving Catholic conference schools and going to NEPSAC schools as well. The MIA is not handing out safety or the waiver for kids. They've gotten really strict when it comes to that. Uh, I know schools that did not get waivers are four or five kids this spring. And I think as a result, kids are going to the NEPSAC schools instead. They're going to Dexter Milton Academy, Nobles, Governors, instead of the Catholic conference schools. I think if kids are going to leave now their public schools, they seem much more tempted to just redo the year again. You, maybe if you want to board at a school, maybe greater access to your coaches, you know, more fall ball, whatever it might be. And so to me, that's an interesting dynamic. I'm interested to see how much this continues. Now, Zavarian did just win the state championship two years ago, and BCI was in the final eight. CM was in the final four last year. So I'm not ready to call it a trend, but I do think more kids are just bypassing the Catholic Conference schools and reclassifying into the NEPSAC. Yeah, that's interesting. It's still like if I saw one of those, if I was playing in the state tournament and I was a four seed and I'd I saw be like, like no. Yeah, yeah exactly. I wouldn't want to play BC High or, you know, Zavarian in the first round. That would not yeah. be a good matchup. But uh, what did I just want to ask you? Oh, one of the trends, well, while we're on the topic of trends, I remember last year, and maybe not just last year, maybe like, you know, over the last five years or something, one of the trends was parents becoming more involved, like arguing with umpires more, yeah. you hear more chirping at games, even between teams. Yeah. Has that gotten better or are you still noticing the same thing? Has it gotten better? I don't know. I think more people are aware of it or the problems that it causes, right? I would say for myself that I've witnessed, it's been, it's been fine. You know, I don't, again, I don't know if it's getting better. I, I just, I think after COVID, people just forgot how to like talk to each other. Like, I think it was all, like, for some reason, the social cues went out the door. I thought you, I think you see like big time sporting events too, or people are just like lunatics for no reason. I don't understand what's happening there. I think the chirping at umpires from parents is always going to be a thing. I think the problem that, that, that happens is that someone, I think it was like Jim Beheim or Tom Izzo was giving this post-game press conference once. It was like, everyone has a job and not everyone has a job that everyone else, that everyone else thinks they can do better. Yeah. And he was talking about coaching, but that's like umpiring to me. 
Like, you know, imagine the umpire like turning around to the parents and like ripping the job they do as an accountant. Like, <laughs> uh, and it's, to me, it's just like comical. So I think it's going to happen. I, I, it has gotten better. I, I think, people, like I said, I think people are aware of it. I think some people have been talking about it. I mean, there's something like a good ejection of a parent from a game, though. Like I, that to me, like, I, I like that. That's it. That is enjoyable for me. I think it's like comical. It's like, look at that parent. Like, he's out of here. Like, I don't know. But yeah, no. Has it gotten better? I just think maybe more people have gotten immune to it. I think that's maybe the best way to put it. I actually read uh, JJ Redick, who is not a baseball yes. guy. He's a basketball guy, but he got ejected coaching his kid yeah. in like a 10 year basketball game. And he said, like, he regrets nothing. He smirked at the ref. He, he the ref ejected him. But you're like, I wonder what the previous like hour was like with JJ Redick on the sideline, like co- coaching a team. You know, JJ Redick to me can be a little condescending at times. I yes. you always see my first take. Like you could tell you've never played high level basketball to make a statement like that. Like he's he always just comes and like a know it all. So you're like, yeah, you might have just smirked at the ref to get ejected. But I wonder what happened in the hour before that, where the guy was just ready to throw you out. No doubt. A hundred percent. Me getting to me, I don't care who you are. Like you could be LeBron James. You get thrown into a youth sporting event. I, I just I don't know what to say to you. I, I just don't <laughs> like that's so pathetic to me. And again, are referees or umpires immune? Gosh, no. Umpires and, and referees, particularly at the pro level, have to be held accountable for how they officiate the game, whether they're doing a good job, bad job, holding grudges. They got they have to be held accountable just like just like coaches do at that level. But high school and youth games. Like someone's like um, refereeing two zero gravity double headers at eight a.m. in Waltham. Like stop. Like ah uh, god. It, yeah, pathetic. Yeah, they signed up to make like forty bucks for the game, so you get to yell at them. That's it's bad. I'm gonna go through your preseason predictions real quick and see if you're still on board with your preseason predictions for state championships in Division One. I, I believe you took Franklin. I don't know. Does that sound right to you? I know. I know. I it was did. Yeah, I think it was Franklin and Taunton, and you said you were just take Franklin to kind of be different because they didn't win it last year and the revenge yep. factor. Are you still, I mean, I don't know why you wouldn't be there undefeated right now. What, what do you think? Still on board with Franklin? I am still on board with Franklin. I'm not going to say the Vegas line for them to win it because I think even though that'd be funny or whatever, humorous, they get a little sketchy, especially after the Alabama uh, baseball scandal for those that have been following that. Um, but uh, that's an all-time story. Um, I could talk about that for like nine hours. But I think Franklin's the favorite. I do. They're going to be the number one seed unless they slip up down the stretch. I think there's certainly other teams that can make noise and upset them and knock them off um, because of the, the pitching that other teams possess, specifically like maybe one dominant arm. But but I think Franklin's really good. And I think that I think what makes them so impressive is their depth throughout their lineup. They don't strike out. They hit the ball the other way consistently. Uh, they're just in brutal outs for opposing pitchers. One of those lineups where you think you've got them two outs, nobody on and single, single, double steal, two run double. Like it's, it's one of those teams that, that just operates and functions at such a high level. And they can do it every time. They're not front runners. It's not like they, they only win 10 nothing. They're in a one-run game with Ton, and Ton's got their best hitter up with a runner on third and two outs. Like, you know, t- so to me, they just can do it in so many different ways. Again, would I be shocked if someone else won? No, it's baseball. Like I said, no one's gone undefeated in 50 years. But, but to me, Franklin's the best team. <laughs> I don't want to spend hours on it, but that Alabama baseball thing. Um, I, so just so I'm making sure I understand what happened. It was it that they, the Alabama coach, there was somebody in a casino in some Ohio. weird Ohio. Okay. Yeah. And they, there's not a lot of betting that goes on with college baseball. It's very little, they said. And then That's all correct. of a sudden there was a ton of money that went on this Alabama game. 
the Alabama starting pitcher got scratched because of like, you know, back spasms or something like minor. And then during the course of the game, the person doubled down on the bet and he was on the phone with the Alabama coach throughout the game. Is that is that the way I'm am I understanding that right? Pretty much, more or less. Um, Alabama fired the coach. In fact, they now have evidence that the gambler, the better in Ohio, based on surveillance video from the sports book, was texting, communicating with the Alabama coach. So, so he, was really, thro- he was throwing the game? I, I don't know if that's, I don't know if they've come to that conclusion. I don't want to, again, I, don't, I really don't want to say that because I, I have not read that. I, I haven't seen that reported. It's definitely very sketchy, though. I mean, it's the only reason he was fired, right? I mean, you don't have the gambling incident that happened last Friday. The, the amount that was placed on a college baseball game live compared to other amounts that get placed on random April college baseball games was so exorbitant that was flagged by gaming commissions. So Alabama baseball not being allowed to bet on in certain states. And then you just fire the baseball coach. I mean, isn't it an excuse to fire the coach? No, because they apparently found surveillance video that this guy is talking to the coach. How dumb do you have to be as a baseball coach? Like, first of all, there's cameras everywhere in casinos. You don't think you're going to get caught? Oh, yeah, let me just play this, like, 900 grand live on Alabama LSU Friday Night Baseball, April 28th. Like, I, I, whatever. I, I just, to me, it, it, how do you get the job? How do you get the job with that level of intelligence? And it's weird, you know, just knowing more about college baseball than I do about gambling. It's also <laughs> just weird that he scratched his Friday starter, put a freshman on the mound, and, like, I don't know who he had, you know, as a yeah. relief throughout the course of the game. But if you're texting with a gambler where all this money's on the line for the other team, I, you know, it just seems like he threw the game, but we're not going to say that because we don't know that. Yeah, uh, we don't. No, we, don't, we definitely don't know that. It was a large bet, though. We do know that. The Louisiana Gaming Commission has said that. But to me, I, I think, again, we don't want to say he's throwing the game, but yes, excuse me, he replaces the Friday night starter who leads the team in ERA, strikeouts, and wins, I think. Right. From So by far... Yeah, I just, it's kind of a wild story. I mean, it honestly, it's a pretty fascinating story. And you have to wonder, I mean, I, I doubt there'll be any regulations placed, but it does have some of the red flags that come with betting on college sports, for sure. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And maybe he just didn't know that there wasn't a lot of money being put down on college baseball. So all of a sudden his huge bet, fla- you know, raised flags and he's like, oh man, I thought that was a ton of money on that game. <laughs> or he didn't even know that any could get caught. It's just like, oh yeah, someone just play some... Large money. Everyone's missing five bucks on this game, but this guy's got a seven fit. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't know. What a weird one. All right, Division Two. Did you take Milton or uh, did you take Lemonster before? I believe I took Milton again to win the whole thing. I think uh, so, yeah. Do you still like them? I do. Uh, I think, I, I, you know, Tommy Mitchell's been been banged up a little bit, but it doesn't, it doesn't seem to matter for Brendan Morrissey's group. That seems to have literally just picked up right where they left off. It was like they just kept playing the entire year. They played at the exact same high level. It's incredibly impressive. They received contributions from all over the diamond in big ways. They've been clutched. They've walked off teams. The Edicts being them 2-0. They score three, beat them in extra innings. Um, One-run game with Foxborough. They walked them off. Then they've dominated teams in the league. Their pitching and defense has been exceptional. I think Lemonster and King Phillip, to me, no surprise there. I think the good question would be, would you be more surprised if Franklin didn't win or Milton didn't win? That, to me, is about a toss-up. To me, though, Milton's still the favorite in Division Two, just the most consistent team day in and day out. And King Philip is the team that uh, dealt Taunton at second loss, so they're they're definitely for real too. Division Three, I believe you took Foxborough. That sounds does that, right. Does that yes. sound right? Oh, you still like them? I do. I do. They haven't even received maximum production from their star players, and and I just got to figure that's going to even out as the season goes on. You know, like I said, they're seven and four. 
And the team three of the teams they lost to um, are teams that are going to be state championship contenders in every in every respect. So I still like Foxborough. I think it's competitive at the top. They're veteran, though. They grind it out. They lost to Austin Prep in a really good game in a state semifinal last year. They're experienced. They know how to win now. They know what it takes to get there. I think I still like Foxborough at the midway point. I'm riding my own chalk right now. Yeah, there you go. No, no, no regrets. I like that. We'll come back in a couple of weeks before the state tournament, um, and we'll do a state tournament preview. Once we kind of see where everybody's finishes up the regular season and where teams are seated, we'll kind of come back and do this again. We'll talk about potential matchups, uh, potential pitching matchups, and that'll be a good one too, right before the MIA state tournament. And hopefully we'll be back in studio for that one. But Matt, thank you so much for making the time. It has been a pleasure to catch up with you on MIA baseball and we'll do it again soon. Absolutely. Look forward to talking again soon. Thanks to Matt Feld for joining us on the Base Path Podcast. Rate, review, subscribe to the Base Path Podcast on your preferred platform. Thanks to our producer, David Yaz. The Base Path Podcast is a Siemens Media production.